Hey this is Sayyam Botani and you're listening to Chai Time Data Science a podcast for data science enthusiasts where i interview practitioners researchers and calculators about their journey experience and talk all things about data science Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chai Time Data Science Show. In this episode, I interview John Miller, data scientist at H2O.ai. John Miller is one of the people similar from the league of guests on the show who started working in data science even before it was called data science. And in this interview, we talk about his journey. and how data science and his work has evolved over the years john has contributed to different roles and we talk about all of them including his current work at h2o.ai we also discuss his winning solution to the nfl first and future analytics kaggle competition where john had even created a real world impact via kaggle competition yes via a kaggle competition even in the previous year where he had uh, won the competition and his findings led to the change of a rule similar to last year john has again won the co- competition this year as well and we talk about his findings about the nfl and his discoveries while working on the competition i also ask uh, john why is football not called hand egg jokes aside this is a conversation where we really connect kaggle real world data science and learning and improving on data science in a single interview so without further ado here's my interview with john miller please enjoy the show and a quick reminder to the non native english speaking audience please remember to go to youtube and enable the subtitles for this video for a better watching experience those have been manually checked and reuploaded for now here's the conversation please enjoy the show Hi everyone I'm excited to be talking to another maker on the podcast today John thank you so much for joining me on the series You're welcome thanks for having me So I want to start by talking about your background and uh, you've been winning the NFL competition for 2 years straight and usually I would expect uh, someone like this to have a CS background maybe I'm biased and I am propagating that but I found out you did your bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering how how did data science come into the picture for you when when did you find your passion Uh well when I when I got my masters in engineering uh I went through a dual degree program and it also offered a masters in business and I focused a lot in operations research and so that's what kind of you know led me into that area doing a lot of applied statistics uh, optimization all of the things that used to be associated with OR uh over the years uh you know I I found that um you know I started hearing about data science and I started hearing about things like random forest and and all of these cool things uh decision tree models and such and realized that you know I hadn't kept up with the with the tools and so um I actually had a chance I had a chance to uh to do some work 
uh, kind of get up to speed when I had a, a knee injury. So, you know, I was, I was laid up for uh, about a week or two and just said, all right, now's the perfect time for me to start learning about what's new in data science and, and these things and uh, just jumped in and, and just really loved it and turned my focus that way and went forward. Okay. Now talking about your background, you worked across multiple roles in your previous life. Uh, can you tell us about the industries that you've contributed to that I think would help us connect the dots of how you got to uh, be- becoming a data scientist today? Um, sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I came out of graduate school, I took a job in consulting, uh, which I never thought I would do, uh, but it turned out to be great because, uh, Prior to that, I had only government experience. I didn't have uh, really, you know, corporate sector experience. And so it was a great way for me to see lots of different companies uh, and and see many environments in a a fairly short amount of time. I mean, over the years, it's been a while, but, uh, you know, I've probably been in in and out of over a dozen companies uh, and most of them like larger Fortune 500 companies. Uh, So so that was really helpful. And and yeah, I've done work, you know, there's most of my most of my work has been uh, you know functionally oriented, so you know towards operations improvement and applied statistics, uh, not so much industry related. But I found myself working a lot in financial services. Uh, did a you know probably two or three years in oil and gas, um, a little bit in media. So by in, in media, it was uh, you know really the, the large uh, cable company providers. And so, you know, in, in the U.S., we have Charter and Comcast and those sorts of companies. Uh, so, I, yeah, I did some work with them. And uh, it really just gave me, you know, sort of a broad base of, of knowledge and, and business processes and, and uh, things like that. That sounds almost like you were working with big data before it, it was called big data. Was that the case? <laughs> yeah, in some, in some cases it was. So uh, there, was a, uh, there was a project I had um, years ago where a big cable company was taking over uh, the properties of another cable company. And so they do swaps and that sort of thing, you know, from time to time. And they had to migrate millions of customers in the U.S. onto their new system. Uh, and and the, the big thing was all around the, um, the Internet and the wireless portion. Uh, so... Uh, it was just a disaster to begin with. Uh, they found that it was, it was a lot harder than they imagined and things started going south. And so they asked me to come in and a couple other folks. And uh, one of the things we did then was uh, we built a forecasting model uh, and it was really applying, you know, it was really applying a lot of, uh, you know, things that we know as data science today. Uh, <laughs> there, there was some, there was some time series forecasting, uh, but then there was also some regression modeling. And we took those and, and we actually made an ensemble, which before I even, you know, heard the term ensemble, we were combining these because they, you know, they each brought different things to the table. So combining those models uh, really worked well. Uh, and we were able to forecast what we did with that is we were able to forecast the daily volume of uh, service calls that they were going to get. And then that allowed them to staff up in advance and not be so reactive. Uh, and they were able to react much better for the, you know, the remaining couple of months during the, the migration. Awesome. So you just described the complete data science pipeline to us. Now, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now coming to what you're currently working on, you're a customer data scientist at S2O. Can you tell us uh, more about the tasks you're working on and uh, why do we need to have customer data scientists? Isn't AutoML uh, supposed to replace us all? 
<laughs> That's a good question. Uh, and so, you know, it's, um, it's funny because people say that about every technology that comes along. I think, <laughs> you know? uh, every, every new field, you know, people will say, oh, this is going to replace us all. And uh, even when I, you know, when I used to do a lot of operations improvement, we would, we would take something that, you know, was taking people hours to do and, and, and change it into minutes. Um, and very rarely, I think only one time out of, out of many where people actually let go or even reassigned. What happens in the same with, you know, with auto ML and driverless is it frees up data scientists to do more value added work. You know, so, you know, you see all the statistics out there, how data scientists spend so much time prepping data and all of this, uh, you know, the feature engineering, which you're still going to need, but really just like, you know, trying many different algorithms, uh, all the different encodings that one can do, uh, you know, combining features, that sort of thing. And then, and then doing feature selection, those things take a lot of time manually, even if you have a system for it. Uh, so, so yeah, I think what driverless does, and this is, you know, kind of our, our pitch is that it automates a lot of that. The data scientists can then spend their time working with the business owners to figure out, you know, what's important to them. They can design the models with the right output. They can think about which metrics to use, all of, all of these good things that uh, you'll always, you know, at least for the foreseeable future, you'll need a data scientist for. I don't want to sound too smart here because I'm not, but I, again, falls back to the philosophical, sorry, philosophical question of being more creative as human beings and leaving the machines to do the dumb work, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then you asked, and so you asked, I think about what I did uh, or what I do now in my role? Yes. Is it, okay. does, does it involve having chai with the grandmasters all the time? Or are you working on problems? <laughs> or are you translating business problems into driverless AI? <laughs> yes, chai with the grandmasters. We, uh, we sit around and we, you know, philosophize about uh, data science. And no, I, I'm not a grandmaster, but um, I do have some chai tea. So I did bring that and it's, it's very tasty, my latte. Um, just a I word have on that. H2O next to me. I, I think it's better for my health. <laughs> H2O and chai tea. We have it covered. All right. Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll answer your question. First, I, wanna do, I do want to address the, uh, you know, the chai tea thing. One thing that is really cool uh, about my current role is that you know, I have access to the grandmasters you know, because we all work together. And even though we're not on the same projects, uh, we have Slack and all of the great tools that we have now. And so uh, I see a lot of times and, you know, others, you probably see this, you probably see it where uh, somebody has an issue and they'll say, hey, I'm trying to figure this out and they'll put it out on Slack. And then, you know, one of the, the grandmasters will come back and say, oh, well, maybe try this because this is what's worked for me. Yeah. Uh, and, and so even that real time collaboration, you know, with with folks like me on the customer side is pretty cool. Um, yeah, so, and so what I do, you know, is, is I, I work on the customer side. I work with uh, folks who, companies who have bought uh, our products, uh, usually driverless AI. And in this case, I'm working with uh, a large accounting firm. And they do, you know, they provide various accounting services, uh, including audits and that sort of thing. And uh, they're using driverless AI to help predict some certain things and to automate one of their processes. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those just highly manual grinding processes in the past. Uh, you know, you have, you have paper documents or image documents and you can OCR those documents. You can run them through OCR, but it still doesn't give you 
the context of what's on the paper. You know, so you could have a number and well, maybe it's a date or maybe it's an account number or maybe it's a balance. It could be any number of things. Uh, you know, words, words, of course, in different contexts mean different things. And so it's always taken a person to look at that and say, okay, well, here's what I'm looking at and, and enter that into the right column of whatever they're, you know, digitizing uh, their system. And so, so what they're doing now is they're using driverless to help classify those documents and the terms and everything in the documents. Uh, and, and I help with that. So I'm helping them build that pipeline so that it's a production level pipeline uh, where they can take, uh, you know, I mean, they're a global firm and they have, uh, you know, these documents coming in from all sources. And so they want to be able to basically take them in and with about a two minute turnaround right now, uh, you know, digitize those documents and capture the information the way it needs to be captured. I, I want to talk about another aspect, um, like you elaborated of the pipeline for us in a very neat fashion. And you talk a lot about this in a blog post that I'll have in the show notes, but did you translate the business problem for us? And uh, I know you're a propeller of talking to business persons as a data scientist, because those two worlds don't connect so much. And I, I'd love to know your thoughts about uh, how you got better at it or why, you, why do you think it's important for all the data scientists to be able to have that skill? Sure. Uh, so, you know, for me, it was something that came as a result of the work that I did. Uh, you know, I started out in operations and I worked as an operations consultant and, you know, I found myself at some point, uh, you know, being a team lead, a project lead, you know, manager, that sort of thing. And so there, my job was really to, to be that person that worked with the business folks all the time, help them translate it into something the team could work on. Um, and, and ended up doing like a lot of just what I would call general management consulting. Uh, and then at some point, you know, I realized that I was doing more PowerPoint than Excel or data science or anything. And I, and I was like, all right, time out. You know, I'm a, I'm a numbers guy and I want to get back to doing numbers. Uh, and so that's what I did. I, I started, you know, that's when I really got, you know, uh, fully back into data science and actually doing a lot of coding and building predictive models. Um, but you know, the, the good thing was that those years of experience have helped me understand the process from a business person's perspective. Uh, and I've been in a lot of meetings where, you know, especially technical people present and the questions are a lot of times the same, you know, like, uh, why are you telling me this? And so, you know, as data, as data scientists, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, I think it's important to, uh, always talk about why you're doing something and kind of give the bottom line up front. Uh, and there's other things like that, that, you know, can help give you things from a, from a business person's perspective. Um, so, so, you know, doing those things just really helps communicate. I learned those firsthand. Uh, and a lot of times the hard way, because I've been that person too, you know, I've been the person that starts talking about the different algorithms and whatever. And, you know, someone stopped me and said, okay, just tell me what this means to us and what we should do about it. So, okay, let's start with that. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, so, so I think it's important. I think it's always good to, to get out and, and talk with folks and get a different perspective. Uh, it's very easy, especially, uh, you know, if you're introverted, and I am, I am an introvert. And so I like to sit in front of my computer and do my work and respond to emails. Uh, but I found that if, you know, if you force yourself to go meet somebody, talk to them a little bit, even just a phone call, uh, you can learn so much about what's important to them. And that's, and that makes you better as a data scientist. It really helps you focus your work. Okay. 
coming to another term that's synonymous with data science and also is to kaggle can you tell us how did your kaggle journey start how did you dis- discover the platform and sign up for your first competition there um yeah when i was so when i was uh, actually recovering from the from the knee surgery i was reading up on data science and there were a lot of great blogs and things out there and i i i need to find out who it was but there was a really good blog that i was reading and the guy who wrote it said you know, look, coursework is great and this and that, but don't delay, just get out and do it. You know, he said, go on Kaggle and start on the Titanic competition. Uh, and, and so that's what I did. And, and of course, you know, a lot of it, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, at the time I worked primarily in R. So now I, okay. I use mostly Python, but at the time I used R. And so I was getting these R scripts and, and reading, you know, and, and Kaggle's so great because, uh, you know, you can see these really world-class uh, notebooks or scripts that, you know, masters and grandmasters have written uh, and it's good stuff. And so I just started going through that and learning it and, you know, doing a lot of uh, looking at the, uh, the API documents for the libraries to figure out what those functions meant. Uh, a lot of Stack Overflow <laughs> Googling, which I still do today, uh, and just started building, you know, building my knowledge that way. Uh, and it was, it was great advice. It's advice that, you know, I also give people is they're like, where do we start? What do we do? It's like, well, you know, when you think you're, when you think you're ready or even before you think you're ready, just go, go try Titanic, you know, go, go there and look at someone's code and just copy it over and look at the outputs and, and kind of learn as you go. And uh, I found it to be a great way to, to pick things up. So that's how I got started. And then, you know, like most people, like once you pick up a, a little bit of knowledge, you try your first real competition. Uh, and so I, <laughs> And so I did that. And of course I was just dreadful, but uh, I, I kept on going and uh, you get to a point where you just, it's, it's uh, you get hooked, you know, it's like just so fun. And you're trying to climb that leaderboard and tune your algorithm. And uh, there's the social aspect of, and I, I, I like all of it. Okay. Now, uh, do, do you think, or if you could point to any examples of how Kaggle has impacted your professional skill set or your professional life? Yes. Um, I think they've, they've been pretty closely intertwined actually, because uh, a lot of the things that I've applied as a data scientist, I either first saw on Kaggle or I saw somewhere else and then, you know, would research Kaggle to see what others were doing. Um, You know, one good example is like with uh, unsupervised learning. And so I was working on a project where we were trying to uh, basically classify vendors. We were trying to identify vendors based on their behavior and find the ones who were uh, not acting within the current guidelines is probably the best way to put it. Uh, and and you had, we had all this transaction data. We had millions of rows of transaction data. And so one of the things I had learned about uh, on Kaggle was uh, Teasney. And so, you know, that's, a, that's an unsupervised method where you can, uh, it's technically it's, you know, reducing dimensions, it's, it's dimensionality reduction, but you're taking all these different variables, all these different factors, and you're transforming it into a two-dimensional plot. And you just look at the plot and you see how, you know, how, the, uh, how these objects are grouped or how these, you know, how, in this case, how the vendors were grouped. Um, and so, yeah, I learned, I learned a lot about it and some good tips and tricks in there and um, was able to apply that in my job. Uh, also, you know, I think at some point, uh, well, I had a client who, who wanted to do a lot of things in Python. And at the time I was, you know, like I said, working uh, primarily in R. And so I, you know, and I, and I was up front. I said, well, I'm, you know, not really uh, all that good at Python. I'm a beginner. And they said, we don't care. Well, you know, you, 
do what you can. And so uh, that worked out. So I got on Kaggle and I would look at, uh, you know, for a certain competition, I would look at an R notebook and then I would look at a Python notebook. Uh, and in, in a lot of cases now, you can even see where somebody wrote something and then somebody else ported it to the other language uh, as a comparison, you know. So that sort of thing has just been very valuable to me, uh, you know, the ability to just go in and, and kind of get, uh, you know, sort of latest, you know, almost leading edge techniques, uh, really good, well-structured code, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and that's probably, you know, that's probably another thing, you know, I, I don't come from a developer background at all. Uh, and so like writing good code, uh, is, is not something that came naturally to me. Uh, and there's different definitions of that, of course. Uh, yeah. but you know, I'd say, uh, like writing good data science code, you know, just, just good language, nice and tight, not overly, uh, you know, hierarchical, all that good stuff. Um, I learned, I learned most of that from other people. Um, a lot of times the guys I work with now. Okay. Now I want to talk about the competition where you absolutely knock it out of the park quite uh, <laughs> literally the NFL competitions. But before we talk about your recent win, can you help us set the stage about the competition and what's it all about? And I think it's one of the unique competitions where you actually got to create a ripple in the world, an impact in the world. So we'll also talk about that uh, in a bit. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, the, the NFL uh, has sponsored uh, two competitions over the past couple of years. And the first one was, was last year, about a year and some months ago. Uh, and, it, and it was sponsored by the health and safety group. So professional football, we're talking about American football, of course, uh, professional football in the U.S. Uh, is a dangerous sport. Uh, there are a lot of people getting hurt. And uh, at the time, and, and still um, concussions had became a, a big thing. And a lot of players are getting concussions. And, and the NFL had, had been taking measures for a couple of years to reduce concussions. And then I don't know how it started exactly, but they decided to release their data publicly uh, to the data science community on Kaggle and ask for help. Uh, and it was, it was a pretty bold move, right? Because, uh, you know, you think about how sports groups and other companies, uh, you know, protect their data like that. Uh, a lot of times the last thing they do is put it out there for people to look at because you can start finding things and maybe pointing fingers, you know, or where you shouldn't and, and whatnot. So, so they did that. And it was, uh, I think it was a, a big success. Uh, you know, it was, it was exciting because uh, it was sports related and, and people like that. But, you know, also I liked it because it was, it was safety related. So, you know, we weren't just trying to make, uh, you know, people run faster or go farther on a play. Uh, it was like to keep people from getting hurt. And so they, they've done that now for two years. And um, the format, so the format is an analytics competition, they call it. And there have been just a couple of those. I think Kaggle just released a third one in the past few days. Um, analytics competitions are quite different from the typical machine learning comp on, on Kaggle. Um, they, instead of having a, uh, you know, a specific training set and test set of data and maybe some other data and being asked to provide a machine learning model, you're given some data, you're given the context, and then you're basically uh, giving, given a goal. So you're, you're, giving, you're given a business objective, right? Uh, so uh, in this case, you know, the first one was we want uh, changes to the rules we are asking for recommended changes to our current rules that will help reduce concussions 
on and specifically on punts on punt plays so a punt and in, in a punt for if you don't follow football is just a type of kick that occurs uh, during the course of play. So when a, when a team can't uh, advance the ball any further, they can choose on fourth down or any down really uh, to punt the ball away. And so it's a, it's a freestanding kick. Uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, what's, what's a fourth down and the other uh, term you had mentioned? Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I just I make assumptions here. Uh, so, so in football, players typically or teams typically have uh, – four down four tries they have okay. four tries to go 10 yards okay and so football is a little bit unique in that it's not a fluid game it's a series of plays that start and stop and so when a play starts uh you know there's a there's a they call it the line of scrimmage and so you start the play you you get to run the ball or pass the ball until the play stops either someone gets tackled or the ball's dropped what have you and then they start the second play at that point. So you get to advance the ball forward, hopefully, uh, four times. If you make it to 10 yards, then they reset your downs and you have four more downs to go another 10. Okay. Okay. Um, if you get to four fourth down and you still have a long ways to go, say you still have eight yards to go, chances are you're going to want to punt the ball and kick it away. So they bring in a punter, and the punter, you know, basically takes the ball from the from the snapper and just kicks it, standing up kick, uh, you know, kind of free kicks it as far as he can or to the right place. And then there's somebody down there waiting to catch it and run it back. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and 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 what happens is it's just a very chaotic play. Uh, there are people running in at high rates of speed from the other side of the field at all different times, uh, and it can be dangerous. And and so yeah, they they have a fair amount of concussions. Probably uh, at the time, anyway, uh, close to twice the rate of concussions okay. on a punt with a typical play. Gordon. So, so yeah, that was the objective. You know, they said, "Hey, this is this is the objective." And then, um, you know, what 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 we were asked to do was to analyze the data and submit a report. And so that was really the final product was a report. Uh, and also a few slides, so sort of an overview slide deck uh, that contained your recommendations, your methodology, you know, your analysis, show your work, all that good stuff. Uh, and then they were going to take that and, and, you know, find the, find the, the analysis and the reports that they thought would give them the most, uh, you know, uh, advantage. You know, I've been I've been wondering all this while, and maybe if you, as an NFL fan, could elaborate. Why is NFL called football and not handball or hand egg? <laughs> hide egg. I like that one. Yes. Uh, you know that that question came up. Uh, I think at the competition last year, people were like, "Why is this even called football?" <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> so somebody somebody researched it, and I brushed up on it. It was. Um, it, it goes back to the origin of the game. You know, so like. Football in America has been around since I think like the early 1900s or so. Uh, and it actually came from uh, rugby football and soccer. And so those sports all kind of come from the same lineage. And I think at some point someone was, you know, calling it rugby football or Australian football at the time or what have you. And so they started calling this game football. And uh, it was really, it was really more about um, like running the ball and that sort of thing. So it looked a lot like rugby, I think, in those early days. Um, and then over time, especially like in the last 10 years, uh, and especially in professional football, it's really become all about passing. Like there's 
so much passing that happens now. Uh, you wouldn't even, you know, probably recognize the game from when we were kids and everyone was running it. I mean, it's still the same game, but, but the dynamics have changed as, you know, as, as people change in, te- in technology and passing ability, all that good stuff. Awesome. Now talking about how the dynamics have changed and you are contributed to this, uh, you're a proud contributor to this. I'll definitely have your amazing kernel linked in the show notes. So please audience do check it out. But if you could also share with us in an audio format of uh, your discoveries this year and what interesting changes did that lead to? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, with the, with the competition last year, uh, the NFL chose four finalists out of the participants and I was one of the finalists. And then we all went to uh, Atlanta that year to present to the NFL. Uh, and they took it they took it very seriously. They actually, um, I found out that they had the head of the rules committee. Uh, I think it's technically called the competitions committee. But the guy that runs the competitions committee for the NFL uh, actually reviewed the reports. And he read all of the reports. And he was there for the presentation. Uh, the, the head of health and safety and the head of the head and the health and safety team were all there. And the commissioner of the NFL was there. His name's Roger Goodell. He's on TV all the time talking about football. Um, he's there as well. And so they, they took it very seriously. And uh, they very quickly, I think what happened is they, they very quickly looked at the different ideas to figure out what they could use. And I had one recommendation uh, that, that they happened to like, and that was involving something called a blindside block. Uh, and so what happens on a punt is that, you know, the ball is kicked across the field. Uh, somebody on the receiving team catches it and starts running. Well, uh, people from the team that kicked the ball, if you can imagine, uh, are running now down to tackle that person with the ball. <laughs> and as, as they're running to tackle, uh, you know, what first happens is when the, when the play starts, uh, the people who are on the receiving team, the receiving team, they have people there that are just trying to actually tackle the punter before he can punt the ball. And so that's what, you know, they're trying to tackle the punter, but yeah, almost always the punter gets that ball out. And so they have to turn around and go help their teammate who just caught the ball. And what happens is you have people coming in, you know, just from all different angles and this, and you know, there's, there's this blindside block where a player is fixated on tackling someone and someone from the other team comes in from behind or from a rear sort of quarter and just hits them hard. And that has been legal in the past, as long as it's a clean block. In other words, it's not below the waist. It's not to the head. It's not head first. It's just a, you know, slam up against the person from, from behind. Um, so the problem, sorry, just yeah, to understand the block here also refers to a tackle or I, I'm not sure what their term is block. Sure, sure. So a block is a little bit different, although they can look the same and they can result in the same. A tackle is specifically uh, against a person holding the ball. Okay. So if I'm holding the ball and you come jump on me and take me down, that's a tackle. Okay. If, if I don't have the ball and you come flying in and hit me as hard as you can to knock me across the room, that's a block. Got it. Yeah. Or, or sometimes blocks are more passive, you know, where you're just, you're just standing still and you're not letting me around you. That's also a block. Um, but in a punt, in a punt, these, these blocks are pretty violent collisions. And, uh, you know, you can imagine like if, if you see somebody coming toward you and they hit you, you know, body to body, you're expecting it and you might go somewhere, but you'll, you know, you'll probably get up and be okay. If someone hits you from behind when you're 
planning on something else and you don't know what's happening, it can, it can mess you up, you know? Yeah. Uh, for one thing, I mean, you know, your, your head's going to have movement that it wouldn't have otherwise. And so that's the big thing is the head acceleration. Um, a lot of people, you know, that because there are several people uh, in the same space at the same time, a lot of helmets knock together, uh, that sort of thing. And so uh, it turned out to be a pretty dangerous place. So one of the things that, that I recommended was um, in certain cases, uh, which are when, when everybody is running back basically toward that person catching the ball uh, in the running back sort of away from the other goal line, uh, blindside blocks should not be allowed because they, they're, not, they're not as crucial to what a blocker does and it's, it's uh, you know, without getting into the dynamics too much, um, it's just, it's not a huge part of the game as much as it just gets people hurt. So, you know, wait for everyone to turn around and then do what you want, you know, then block them, do your football thing. Uh, but anyway, that's what I recommended and showed them, you know, that it, it would reduce, you know, some number of concussions per year. Uh, not a huge amount, but it was, you know, probably at least like six to eight concussions per year. Uh, which, you know, over a 10-year period that maybe a player has, that's that's pretty significant. Um, so, yeah, the NFL heard that, and they acted on it very quickly. And uh, before this current season started, which would have been back in July or August for the preseason, they had, uh, they had done their homework on it. They took that recommendation to the owners, the team owners, and the team owners uh, approved it. And so it's approved as a conditional rule, I think, where they're going to test it out for a year or two and then decide whether to keep it. So far, I think it's been it's been pretty positive from a, you know from a football perspective. Uh, fans don't fans don't always like it because you know uh, there are a lot of fans out there that still like the hits and like all that stuff. And uh, so, so there's a bit of a, you know, there's a bit of a mindset change that goes with it where you have to, you know, you have to kind of make sure people understand that it's, it's not good when players get concussions for the, for in the long term. So yeah, but yeah, so that was, that was really cool. It was really cool to see that. And then, um, you know, just to see any company sort of act on something is, is fun, but being in sports, I think it was extra fun for me. Okay. Awesome. Again, uh, for the audience, uh, all of these in depth will be linked in the show notes. So please go ahead and check those out. Now I, I want to ask this question for all of us grandmaster aspirants or master aspirants. Do you think driverless AI can help us become a master or a grandmaster even? Mm, let's see. Uh, I, I, yes. I, th- I mean, I think it can, it can help you be, you'll be a lot better. So uh, specifically for Kaggle, I would say no, not really, because uh, the machine learning competitions are open source. And so if you win a competition and you use driverless AI, uh, then, <laughs> then uh, you know, you're going to have to answer to how you got there and, and someone will see. Uh, so, but, you know, I mean, to the, to the less literal part, um, yeah, absolutely. There's some things. I don't know if it would truly get you to like a grandmaster level because there's still, you know, like we said, some things that people have to do, but it definitely adds a lot of, uh, you know, power to your toolkit. So, you know, and I, and I can say for me, like, um, I'm usually pretty good at uh, dissecting the problem up front and I can find some good features. So when I go to feature engineering, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come up with some good domain-based features that I think work pretty well, uh, different aggregations, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, 
But then like, you know, when it comes to trying 80 different algorithms and hyper tuning parameters and uh, selecting features, that takes me a lot of time. Um, and, and there are some things I just don't know, you know, or maybe I, I heard about it a long time ago, and then I forgot and I don't have a good system uh, because I, th I think that's one thing a lot of grandmasters have is they have a good system to, to test and, and iterate through these things. Uh, driverless AI does that. Like it has the iteration already built in and it tries all the, of the different things. Uh, I mean, it was, it was programmed by grandmasters and continues to be uh, as they use their, you know, prize winning techniques from Kaggle. And so that's a, a big part of it anyway. Um, and so, yeah, it, it will, it will definitely help you build a better machine learning model. Uh, I don't, you know, and I'm relatively new to the company, but I've been uh, aware of the product for eh, probably about three years now, two or three years. Um, and I don't know of a case yet. I'm sure there is one, but most of the cases I've seen, um, the, the driverless AI model will improve on what people have already done and will even like do it in just a lot less time. And so it becomes pretty compelling for them to see that, okay, hey, this, this is good stuff for us. Now, I, I apologize. I've only had 11 cups of chai today, so I'm a little chai deprived, but <laughs> I, I think I missed uh, your this year's contribution to NFL. Uh, I think the blindside blog was from the previous year's solution. Could you yes. could you elaborate from about your findings from this year? And uh, again, uh, it's also available as a kernel where you shared the report for, for the audience. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so this year, the uh, the competition was about reducing lower limb injuries. Uh, so that's knees, ankles, uh, and feet. And uh, it's also a very big problem for, for the NFL and for, I mean, for players, for teams, not only, not only because of the injury, but, um, you know, it's, it's the severity. I mean, it's not the number of injuries per se, although there are a lot. Uh, it's the severity. You know, there are a lot of um, ACL tears. So the ACL is a ligament in the knee. Uh, anterior crucial ligament, I believe. Uh, it basically keeps your lower leg from hyperextending and, and such. Um, and it's very easy to tear in a sport like football where there's a lot of lateral movement. Uh, I think soccer players must also have a fair amount of ACLs, uh, ACL tears, uh, basketball. It's, 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 it's pretty common to, to sports like that. Um, and so the NFL wanted to do something about that. They wanted to, to reduce those. They, they also wanted to have a special look. They wanted to, to reduce those in the context of looking at synthetic turf versus natural turf. And, and so in the NFL right now, you have uh, about two thirds of the stadiums using natural grass and about one third using uh, synthetic of some sort. Okay. And there's been, you know, ever since, uh, it was invented. AstroTurf was the big popular brand. Uh, ever since AstroTurf was, was invented, there have been, you know, uh, just stories and people saying um, that, uh, you know, that sort of surface grips your foot a lot more. And so when you do a hard cutting maneuver or move to the side, your leg doesn't free up and that wreaks havoc on your knees and ankles. Um, and so, you know, the industry has tried to improve over time and come up with, you know, next generation products. And, and I think they've done that somewhat, um, it, but it's still, it's still an issue. And from time to time, there are studies that come out that say, hey, look, there is, there's definitely a higher, you know, uh, rate of injury on synthetic turf, uh, especially, you know, either under certain conditions or if players are wearing a certain cleat pattern, 
uh, these kinds of things. So, so that was the challenge. Uh, we were also given data on the environment. Uh, so was it raining? Was it cold? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Was it an open stadium or closed stadium? Uh, we got, let's see. Oh, we had movement data. So yeah, that was the big thing. So we also had the movement data where uh, it's pretty cool that, you know, the NFL puts a sensor now in every player's shoulder pad. Okay. And what it does is it tracks their movement during the entire course of a play, every play. Uh, and it takes those measurements about 10 times per second. So, uh, you know, you can, you can get this data, they call it next gen stats, uh, NGS, you can get this, this NGS data and you can recreate a play and you can look at, uh, you know, player movement. Uh, you can look at speed, velocity, you can look at acceleration, either directional or linear, uh, get a lot of different things out of it. And, and from that, you know, you can start to estimate forces on the legs and all this good stuff. Um, so we had all this data and uh, the NFL didn't ask specifically for any kind of change this year. They didn't ask for a rules change or anything. They more, they more um, generally asked for insights uh, any ideas into what's going on. And then, you know, if you had some recommendations, you know, throw those out there. Uh, of course they like, you know, everyone likes to have a recommendation. Hey, what, you know, what do we do with this? Uh, but I, but I think they were equally interested in the, in just the insight. So that was, that was the issue, uh, that we all looked at. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I approached that sort of the same way I did. I did a lot of upfront domain research this time, uh, more so than I did last year, just a lot of research to understand like what has been done in terms of, you know, uh, research of synthetic to natural. Uh, what do players think? You know, can you find like player ratings? Uh, you know, what are some of the uh, what are some of the economics of the whole thing, you know, that go into either putting uh, synthetic or natural? Uh, because that's, you know, there's a um, there's a there's two things probably that have driven that sort of, you know, the, the, the likelihood of synthetic turf. Uh, one is just the ability to grow grass in some climates, in some places, uh, it's hard. Uh, if you have a closed stadium, you're not going to be able to grow grass. And so some places like domes and that sort of thing, um, which, which now they're actually doing that now, uh, you know, just a, a, an aside, uh, the new stadium being built in Las Vegas uh, is either closed roof or retractable but they're having natural grass. And so okay. their field, their field is built on a giant football field sized tray. And I guess it's about four feet thick. And after the games, they pull this giant tray of grass out and they go put it in the sun to, to grow in their, in their growing area. Yeah. And then they put it back in for the game. So um, yeah, I did, you know, I did all this research to try to understand, talk to different people to, to figure out what's going on. Um, and then, you know, did the analysis I used, uh, I used machine learning, uh, supervised machine learning, and uh, I aggregated uh, the data up to the player level and, and tried to see what was going on. And um, yeah, what I found was that uh, synthetic turf does make a difference. Uh, it does appear to be a factor. And I can't say it does make a difference. Uh, what I can say is that for the sample provided, it did make a difference. Uh, and it appears to be an important factor, but in my opinion, not as important as other things like um, the acceleration, you know, the accelerative forces, uh, sometimes the environment. So if it was raining or snowing, 
that sort of thing. Um, or the days of rest. That was probably the big thing that, that occurred was the days of rest between games. So, you know, if you have players that are playing over and over and getting a lot of hard work and uh, it's a tough game, they're going to get hurt even if you play on the best surface available. I mean, that's, you know, um, yeah. So, so um, yeah, I, I presented that and I packaged that into my report and uh, sent it in and I uh, was selected again as a finalist and I got to go to Miami this year. Uh, I did not get Super Bowl tickets, uh, but I got to go, and, <laughs> but I got to go and have a good time in Miami and, and meet a lot of NFL folks and, and uh, present uh, my findings. Um, so yeah, I think the, I think the thing that they may have uh, launched in or uh, latched onto is uh, that part about the, the rest between games, the player rest. Um, you know, the NFL is also considering uh, changing their schedule. Uh, maybe more games, you know, they're considering, hey, do we want more games in the regular season? Uh, do we want to take some of the preseason games and make those regular season? Do we just want to have players play for an extra two weeks per year? You know, all sorts of options are on the table. And I think this data can help them, you know, provide some insight and to say, you know, like, well, wait a minute, we have to watch the rest because that, may be an important factor also. Um, so yeah, that was one thing. I guess the other thing I showed was that, uh, you know, there's a huge difference uh, between the number of games that different teams play on synthetic fields. Uh, you have teams, if you look back just to, I mean, it's almost every year, but if you go back to 2018, which is I think the data we had, uh, there's, you know, one team played one game out of 16 on synthetic, another team played yeah, and another team played 13, and, and you had everything in between. Uh, so, you know, maybe there's something that you can do with the schedule and home games versus away games uh, and some of, the, you know, some of the rules around that to sort of even that out a little bit to prevent a team from having to play 13 games on synthetic or what have you. Interesting. I think yeah. this approach also really speaks to – so. Uh, a new Kagler might just look at the data and try fancy things and you went ahead through the efforts of even looking outside and really understanding all of the publicly available ideas that you could and gather that information and try to bring that into your solution. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've, uh, when I first started Kagling, I read, you know, several uh, sort of how-tos from uh, the current, you know, grandmaster and master population. And, and the advice that kept coming up, and you'll still see, uh, is that um, don't just jump in and start machine learning. You know, it's very tempting to take your train set and run XGBoost on it and see what comes out. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's okay to do that, but really, you know, the advice that they'll, they'll, they'll give and that I like is that, um, you know, just, just wait, think about the problem, sort of look at the data, explore it, just kind of think about, you know, what might be important and, and take that approach. And then, you know, once you've considered the problem and done all of your exploratory analysis, then start putting some models to it and see what you get. Awesome. If, if you were to give one final best advice to someone who's just starting machine learning or Kaggle, uh, what would that be? Huh, let's see. Um, I would say get engaged, like get involved, uh, not just with competitions, but with the community. Um, ask questions uh, in the discussion forums. Put a notebook out there, even if you don't think it's very good. 
ask people to give their opinion on it. I mean, just, you know, do that sort of thing. Uh, you know, learn from others and, and, and do that. Um, it's really easy. And I think I was, uh, you know, I was a little guilty of it to, um, you know, just kind of focus on, on my learning and not even really ask questions, just kind of do research. Uh, I didn't team up with others. Uh, you know, I, I waited a long time to publish my first notebook. Uh, and I would say, you know, if I had to do over again, what I would advise is just get out there and do it. Uh, and, and you'll be surprised. It's a great community. Uh, people are very helpful. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's a good thing. Awesome. Uh, before we end the call, what would be the best platforms to follow your work apart from obviously Kaggle? Oh, let's see. Um, I try to keep I, I, I try to keep relevant with Twitter and just keep good information flowing through there. Uh, you know, when I come across things, so you could possibly follow me on Twitter. I've been a little bit boring lately. I'm going to try to get back on that. <laughs> um, that's probably that's probably the only one. Um, yeah, I mean, we have this podcast now. Uh, I have, you know, I have some things on GitHub, but no bit real big deal. So yeah, probably Kaggle is where I, where I contribute the most uh, to the community, I think. Okay. Audience, please do remember to check out the show notes if you're interested. John, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And thank you so much for all of your contributions to data science and the NFL world, so to speak. <laughs> Thanks, Sonia. Best to you also. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give it a review or feel free to shoot me a message. You can find all of the social media links in the description. If you like the show, please subscribe and tune in each week to Chai Time Data Science.